welcome to our second episode for 2024. If you could hi to Colob, we're really excited to be with you. My name is Daniel and this is Clive. Hello and welcome. Yeah, today we're on lesson two of the Come Follow Me Book of Mormon year. And that's uh, First Nephi chapters one through five. Chapter one to five is really amazing. But I thought I might just start with a quote again, like we did last week. Clive, you don't mind. Of course. Yeah. Well, this one is from President Gordon B. Hinckley, taken from the teachings of presidents of the church. Remember those? Remember those old manuals back uh, in the, yeah. the back in the church. yeah yes. back in the Sunday school and priesthood separate hours. Yep. Brothers and sisters, without reservation, I promise you, if you will prayerfully read the Book of Mormon, regardless of how many times you previously have read it, there will come into your hearts an added measure of the Spirit of the Lord. There will come a strengthened resolution to walk in obedience to His commandments. There will, be, there will come a stronger testimony of the living reality of the Son of God. That's a good quote. Did you get that from... Did we have a bookmark with that written on it? Yeah, I'm very sure when we were, so when we were growing up, we read, we would read the Book of Mormon as a family on almost every day, perhaps every single day. And we had a bookmark in it. One side was to tick off if, you know, the days, consecutive days, and the other side was a quote. And I think that this might've been the quote, but it was some time ago. So I'm going to say, I think so, maybe. (laughs) Good, good. Yeah. It does, it definitely sounds familiar. I think you're probably right. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a a really good couple of chapters to get into here. And in just in the first five chapters alone, there are seven visions. So there is an awful lot, I think, that we want to talk about. I'm I'm just looking here at verse one and verse two. What what do you where do you think we should start? What are you going to start us with? Do you think? Um, well, if I'm starting us off, I wouldn't mind starting us off with verse two. I mean, verse one. It's a verse that everyone reads probably the most times. When you start reading the Book of Mormon, you start reading verse one again. It's probably the most read verse over and over. But I was I was hoping you would say that because I imagine, I guess what we're trying to teach and what we're trying to talk about on here is not just the every you know most things that you would learn about in your Sunday school or gospel doctrine class, and that teachers no doubt will go through this verse, which is packed. Uh, but we'll, but yeah, I think that's best. Let's leave that for leave that's that for right. Let's look at so what I was reading when I was reading verse two. Actually, it talks about the language in which he speaks and the language in which the Book of Mormon's written, and I thought that was really interesting as I read it because I wanted to understand how it was written and why it was written the way it was. Joseph Smith describes the writings of it as a f- type of reformed Egyptian. So, I mean, what is Reformed Egyptian? Nephi says that it was a language of his father, which was Hebrew, but also the learning of the Egyptians, which is Egyptian. The way the Book of Mormon's written as well, sometimes it can feel repetitive or the way it's written, it seems sort of old language. And I just wanted to get an understanding of what that is. And I came across this really interesting document. It was a papyrus that was found in the 1800s in Egypt. Um, and it dates back to actually 1550 BC, which is... 1550. Really 1550 BC, yeah. So a good, th- yeah, almost a thousand years before... Well, certainly not before this was written. This was written a bit later, but a long time. A long, long time ago. Uh, they call it the Bremer Rind Papyrus. And they found it, and in it, they find find, find the reference on our podcast, I'll say, on our yeah. Instagram, Clive. <laughs> of course, yeah. Go check that out. <laughs> Hi to um, Colob, Hi to Colob yeah. underscore podcast. 
perfect. <laughs> Good plug. Yeah. So um, in there, they've always known about this thing called colophons. Colophons are a specific way that Egyptians write something. Uh, Egyptians write, which I'll get into that. But they found a very specific colophon in this papyrus. And how they describe it is they say that it gives a date of the text, the title of the author, the genealogical information about the author's parents, which I thought was interesting, and also mm -hmm. a curse upon everyone who might tamper with the document. And that is how the Book of Mormon starts. And colophons always end with, and so it is, or thus it is. Just to basically say everything that I've said, this is what I've said. This is what I mean. You know, it's sort of like a signing off of the document that was just written it's more like an ending like this is everything that i've said this is what i've said right nephi if you look at the first book of nephi the way that he starts it he talks about who his name is you know i nephi which again yeah. we've read a thousand times he gives the merits of his parents with special attention to the learnings of his father like i mentioned yep yep he um, says he yeah he says his father goodly parents of course and somewhat and he was taught in the learnings of his father right exactly so that's that's that part of it and then he gives a solemn avow to the record that it is true he says i make a record in mine own hands saying so what i've written i've written and i'm saying that this is true and a lot of the times through the book of mormon but especially in first nephi if we're looking at this in particular at the end of chapter nine thus it is amen so that's him saying these things from chapter one through chapter nine thus it is this is what i've written i'm signing off amen and so, then chapter 10 it gets into his own sort of so stories. do you think that one of course when joseph smith translated the the book he didn't have all these chapters as they are now when nephi wrote this he wrote one to nine in kind of one sitting or that was one thought, one train of thought, or one memory, and he wrote sure. all that in one go. I mean, it's quite possible, but we know that most definitely he's saying one to nine is one section for him, saying this is this, this is what it is, thus it is, you know, thus it is, amen, let me get into the next bit. That That is one whole bit that I want to focus on, that section there, that's what he's saying. One, that's a particular bit. Ten, that's my bit, I'm going to the next part. And then you said that it was a record. So he says here in verse two, the language which consists of the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians. Yeah, well, exactly. So the Egyptians, the colophons, that's the Egyptian sort of thing. In fact, Hugh Nibley says concerning the historians of the Book of Mormon, later historians became crammed for space. They saw an advantage of writing in Egyptian characters. Right. So he's this colophon way of writing then they sort of evolved into the characters you know the book of mormon they're in on plates different plates over different times but plates no doubt so i thought it was really interesting and so if you look at um, moroni speaking at the end of um, the book of mormon as in mormon the, the book area what would you call it he says in verse 32 and now behold we have written this in what, record. What, what, cha what chapter sorry this is mormon chapter nine and it's verse 32 and he says now behold we have written this record according to our knowledge in the characters which are called among us the reformed egyptian being handed down and altered by us according to our manner of speech 
not only is he saying that, you know, there's the way we write it, plus as his characters, but these characters have been altered by us because of the way that we speak now. You know, you remember when we were younger, there was words that we would say that our parents didn't understand. Now there's things that my kids and your kids say that I don't understand. Oh, you know, drive, language drive me mental. <laughs> language evolves all the time. The Book of Mormon, it's over a space of a thousand years. Imagine the particulars of the way that they wrote stuff and the yeah. way that this colony, I guess you'd call it, moved from one area to another and the families grew, how much their languages as well would have evolved. Moroni doesn't stop there. He says in 33, and if our plates have been sufficiently large, we would have written in Hebrew, but the Hebrew hath been altered by us also. And if we could have written in Hebrew, behold, ye would have no imperfection in our record. So he's saying, hey, you know, we knew the language of Hebrew. We couldn't fit it on properly. So that's sort of been altered as well, along with this Egyptian. Moroni goes on to say in verse 34, But the Lord knoweth the things which we have written, and also that none of the people knoweth our language. And because that none of the people knoweth our language, therefore he hath prepared a means for the interpretation thereof. So essentially, imagine Joseph being, Smith. Imagine me, Joseph Smith, reading that, going, "Oh, that's me. I've <laughs> done this. That's me. That's the guy that they're talking about. I'm the one that." So yeah, I right. thought that was really great. So yeah. So the Book of Mormon, it's written, and it starts off as a language of Egyptian and Hebrew, and then evolves into a new form of Egyptian. I suppose you'd call it a new form of Egyptian, a new form of Hebrew that could only be described as reformed Egyptian. Okay. Well, that forms pretty. Good, actually, into the what I wanted to talk about at the start, and that was the spelling, actually, of Nephi's name, because it's a it's a peculiar name, not in the church, of course. There's a place called Nephi, of co of course, now, and Nephi, some yeah. it's a semi-common name in the church in general. Yeah, I mean, there's no kids at my kids' school school called Nephi, but I'm sure there's a lot in Utah in the church, and Idaho yeah, and all those places. And even heroes, I, th I think I know a couple. So there is a, the, but for us, it wouldn't be normal. And so I wanted to have a look into this name and I've come across some really interesting information here. Really the work by a guy called John Gee, G-A-A. And he has proposed a train of thought here where he's looked into the Egyptian name or the Egyptian translation of Nephi and that is the spelling N-F-R, Nefer, N-F-R. So only three letters. And we'll actually see this as a really common thread, by the way, as well. We'll talk about getting three down. Letters. The three letters, yeah. We'll think. We'll talk about Bountiful in a few weeks when we get to that part. Uh, the word Nahom, there's a, there's a town called N-H-M that can be tracked back. So the three letters are super common for back then. And the Egyptian term is nfr nefer but what i would say is the r the final r in nfr in the egyptian form was pronounced as an i or a y sound so nfi or nfy nefi nefi and if you have a look at the hebrew the name of, of nephi is spelled npy nepi but the p is the equivalent to an F, so Nephi. So we're kind of getting really, really close. Similar, I was just thinking about it when you were talking about the language of our of our father, the 
Jewish and the Egyptian side, we're seeing here a really similar interpretation. I think that's why we're getting such a translation of when we get Nephi, because there's an indication that the Hebrew P is phonetically equivalent to an F, N-F-Y, Nephi. So much like in our English spelling, P-H. So, so was it, is that an a common name, Nephi, or is it just mean something else? I don't know if it's a common name. I don't think it would have been uncommon. I don't really know enough about ancient sort of names to know if it would be common. It's probably, it's an interesting question, actually, if loads of people are floating around with, with this spelling of their name, NPY. It's so, interesting if other people interpret it a different way, you know, to mm. the English language. You know, you look at Jehovah was, you know, Yahweh was the way it was said originally and that sort of evolved into the way we say NASA. Yeah, I wonder if uh, it could have been a common name and people have changed it to something Mm. else. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, just something I thought that was quite interesting and that's how we've we've got Nephi from those original saying. That's how they would have said. That's how Lehi, from all accounts... It would have been Nephi, and we call we call him Nephi as a modern uh, translation. So his so his father would have, would have most likely said something like Nephi. Now, one the next part I actually wanted to talk about is really interesting, I think, and that is verse five. So, verse five is Nephi introduces his father by name. He says. That wherefore it came to pass that my father Lehi, as he went forth, prayed unto the Lord, yea, even with all his heart in behalf of his people. I was thinking there's always a trigger for someone to go and do something. And what is the trigger for Lehi to go and pray? He's a good father, Nephi says, and he has the mysteries of God, of course. But at some stage, he decides to pray and got me thinking a lot about Jeremiah. Jeremiah was around in the exact same time, in the exact same town, except just a a couple of differences. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet in his youth. Lehi isn't called till perhaps 20 or 30 years later. And got me thinking that if Jeremiah is in Jerusalem preaching repentance and preaching to all the people, repent and be destroyed, was Lehi at one of his sermons? Right. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah that, that's an interesting point. We know Lehi was a man of God. Why was he a man of God? At what stage did he yeah. go, hey, this is truth and I believe this? So that's an interesting point. And, and I should go pray. Yeah. Like, unless he was taught that. So... It's something, uh, yeah, I guess I was thinking a little bit about Jeremiah's in Jerusalem. We know that Lehi would have been in Jerusalem a lot. He was a trader. We talk a little bit about um, he, had, he had gold and silver and precious things. They try to trade them off with, with Laban, of course, a bit later on in these chapters. So I just got me thinking, did Jeremiah even know that Lehi had heard his words? Did he know that he'd left a great impression with Lehi? And actually, Lehi goes on to, to become an incredible prophet and lead these people to this new land was he aware of that i'm not sure but i think it's a pretty good case to argue that lehi would have been in the crowd and would have certainly have learned from jeremiah my thoughts it's a a great point i mean he's in the area there's a prophet jeremiah wasn't a guy in the background that people would whisper about he was a great man a great leader was there's so much written about him 
So it makes sense to me. If you're in the area, you hear this man, I mean, you're going to get touched by the spirit. And I guess that's what happened to Lehi, I would say. Mm, Interesting. Okay, so Lehi prays, and this is where he gets his prophetic calling. In verse 6, he prays unto the Lord, And there came a pillar of fire and dwelt upon a rock before him. And he saw and heard much. And because of the things which he saw and heard, he did quake and tremble exceedingly. So Lehi gets this message, presumably sees the Lord and is called to be a prophet. And we know he's called to be a prophet because he has another vision and he's taught a lot of things. And when that finishes, halfway through verse 18, he says, and began to prophesy and to declare unto them the the things which uh, he had both seen and heard. It's an incredible couple of verses. Lehi, I'm going to say, you know, most likely, I think most likely, hears Jeremiah, prays, and now gets his prophetic calling. And he's so wrecked, by the way, he's so wrecked that he then goes and lays on the bed and falls asleep. Yeah, when we talked about last week, Joseph Smith, how exhausting some of these visions can be. Moses, same thing. You know, you have these incredible visions and you're just completely exhausted. But you're right. He is visited in a vision. It's very similar to the way that Joe Smith was visited. It only makes sense that it was for an incredible reason. It's not just a, you know, hey, everything Jeremiah said was true. Go about your day. It was something. Something really happened there. I think that's great. And like you Mm. said, from there, many, many visions right after that. Right, yeah, just one of. Well, this is that's it's really the beginning. It's really really the beginning of what's about yeah, to exactly. come. Yeah, exactly. You know, going off of that, the second vision that he has, I just find it really interesting. He talks about the heavens are opened and he sees in heaven God sitting on his throne. And not only does he see God, but he sees concourses of angels singing and praising God. He sees these particular men that he sees he says that he sees 12 behind the throne of god it's just an opening this incredible opening of a vision and then he's given this book to read and as i was reading that it sounded really familiar to me and i went back and i looked in the book of revelations you know the uh, the vision that john has right yeah this is sounding familiar yeah, in, in chapters four and five john has this same vision he sees god sitting on his throne he goes into a lot more detail about the things that he saw as well. But the the gist of the, I guess you'd say, the vision was the same. And we've got to remember that what we're reading in First Nephi is Nephi's abridgment of the things that his father saw. So Nephi has his own visions later on. He goes into a lot more detail. But this is the abridgment version of what Lehi saw. And Lehi's writing his own account. And we did talk about last week how Lehi, he some of the pages of, of the book of Lehi, or the, the entire book of Lehi, in fact, went missing. And so right. it only makes sense to of me course. that if John the Revelator had this vision and he wrote this incredible book, the book of Revelations about it, even the, even just chapters four and five go into so much detail about the vision, it only makes sense to me that Lehi also went into a lot of detail about this vision. In the book of Lehi, wrote it in the book of Lehi for for people to learn exactly, from. Exactly. Sure. The book of Lehi must have been, in my opinion, I would say it's a lot like the book of Revelation. If Lehi had this incredible vision, he would have written it down for his children to read or for even for himself to look back and to understand the things which he had seen. So I thought that was just incredible. And then 
I sort of got sidetracked then on verse 11, their book that he's handed. And I really wanted to understand what this book was. John talks about the same book that he's given. And in Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith, you know, he's, there's a whole questions and answers section of Doctrine and Covenants, yep. section 77. Yep. And he does ask, you know, what, what the book's all about. And he's told that it's, the book contains the revealed will and mysteries and works of God. Hidden things of his economy concerning the 7,000 years of the earth's temporal existence. In it, it would have talked about the destruction of Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem was this great city that could never be destroyed. It's such a vital part of the Bible, the destruction of Jerusalem, because everything else that happens later on. So Lehi would have read this and he really would have honed in on that. There would have been a lot of other things he would have read and I'm sure he would have explained but this particular one, you know, he's saying, hey, there's this Jerusalem where we live, this indestructible city, it's going to be destroyed. I've read it in this book and I've seen it in these visions. There's a whole bunch of other things as well that he talks about. But again, I mean, Nephi says, you know, this is my writing and I'm going to write my things. Yeah, re- re- yeah go re- read, read the book of Lehi. Yeah, that's basically what he's saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why should I? I'm not going to rewrite the <laughs> yeah. book of Lehi. Losers, read <laughs> it right. yourselves. You've got it. You can read it. So, yeah. So then I. It made me again wonder, we talked about last week how Joseph Smith, he saw the pillar of light, uh, which first he describes as fire, because it's the easiest way to describe it. And I thought, I wonder if it's the same with the book. So Lehi and John, they both describe it as a book. And I was looking in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel has a similar vision, but he describes it as he was given a scroll. And he said that this scroll has writings on both sides of the scroll and look i don't know if there's pen and paper in heaven parchment ink i don't know ezekiel says it's a scroll with writing on both sides john the revelator and lehi explain it as a book and i wonder if we saw it today we'd go it's an ipad with two screens or would say it's a book but it's got a computer screen on it. like how would we describe it the best way they described it the same the best way they described it we described it the best way to describe it it was just sort of a interesting tangent that i thought that i kind of went on mm. what is this book what is the heaven side it how do we explain it for today i really had wish i had the book of lehi <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 and important enough for lehi to write about it and for and for nephi to make note that that's it's in right there. that's right and there's so many I'm sure he wouldn't have copied everything from the book of Lehi, oh, right? Well, there's no way. I mean, he obviously does talk about a lot of things from the book of Lehi, and he even says, I'm writing these things because I feel like, you know, the, the Lord's telling me I need to write these things for whatever purpose, which we know now because, you know, the book of Lehi was lost, but there's so, there'll be so much in there that if we had today, we're like, wow, look at this. Hey, look at what revelations might have missed, or this understanding is the way that we need to understand it a bit more. Interesting, interesting. Well, to sum, sum up chapter one, I really like the last half of verse 20. Nephi kind of summarizes a little bit here. But behold, I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are all over those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. He's saying, you've read this, now read more. I'm going to show you, I'm, I'm about to show you what God can do, the tender mercies of God. So chapter two there is, comes into an interesting point because it's really quite a, 
archaeological, locational, I guess. Because we now learn that Lehi leads the people, leads his family away, essentially. And we find out that later, later they get to the, the Valley of Lemuel. There's a few things here that, that I think I've missed when I've taught, but there's a couple of interesting points here, and it's important to look at the wording because we can actually find what we believe is the closest point for where the Valley of Lemuel was. And I'm going to say there is a couple of candidates. I'm going to only talk about one specifically today, but there's we'll definitely put that on our Instagram. There's a couple of really great articles um, by exceptional people. Here, Clive, in verse 5, he says, and, it, and he came down by the borders near the shore of the Red Sea, and he traveled in the wilderness and in the borders which are nearer the Red Sea. So they're traveling down and they've kind of got to the Red Sea, which are nearer the Red Sea. And he did travel in the wilderness with his family, which consisted. And then he, this is where we now we get this introduction as well, by the way. We get an introduction to the rest okay, of the yeah. family. So they get down to the borders. And borders is an interesting point because what is borders? And we kind of see, we, we, get, we have borders twice. And he came down by the borders near the Red Sea. So is it the and border he, of the Red Sea? Is it a is the is it the place? Is it the borders the place? I did I remember watching a lecture by Hugh Nibley that did talk about borders, and he was saying that perhaps borders should have been a capital B, because he believes that the borders were an actual physical place. This is the border, not the border of the Red Sea where it touches the land, but an actual border. Is that the sort of? That's that's exactly right. So that's right. So the borders. What he's talking about here is borders of different kingdoms. And where the northern part of the Red Sea is, it, there's two different kingdoms. And so that's where we're getting a border from. So it's a border, a political border, let's call it, as opposed to a physical wall or something else. It's more of a political border. Border separating the kingdoms. So they, right? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. And, and so then they travel further down from that border border so they get to the red sea and then they travel three days further so it's really really important to note that it's not three days from where they set off it's not three days from just outside of jerusalem as we as we know that that's where they're from they travel down and then they travel three days and that that's when they pitch their tents and we get some really good explanation here we we get an altar so lehi builds an altar and he makes an offering unto the Lord, he says here in verse 7, and gave thanks unto the Lord our God. Now, a critical point to this, there's a couple of really interesting points in these in these few verses. I'll try not to bore you, Clive, too much. I'll try not to drag this on too much. But really, this altar is an altar that Lehi has built outside of the temple. And that is significant because this would have been, this is Lehi building an altar and recognizing that this is the new Israel that he's building. Because, of course, you would always have to go to the temple. You, you can't just build altars willy-nilly. Right. Again, showing um, his calling. You know, he's not just a guy. That's, that's right. Like, I'm taking my family and I, I get to build this altar just because I'm a good guy. That's right. That's right. So it's, a, it's, it's actually quite a significant point there that he builds, that he builds an altar. And so then we get, to the, we get to the valley. And there's a couple of descriptive words here that is used for it. And, and I'm not going to, we're not going to do this podcast for me to just read the scriptures, scriptures to you, but 
please check them out and, and have a look. There's an area near the Red Sea and that is the work. This work is done by a guy called George Potter and another Aussie local guy called Warren Aston, um, who did their work separately, I must say, but their, their writings are just incredible. And they, they visited this area multiple times and have come up with great evidence of this is where the Valley of Lemuel could be. They talk about the area just being sparse. And if you imagine an Arabian peninsula, that doesn't sound like somewhere where there's loads of rain and loads of water, right? I think it's it not, it, um, yeah, yeah, not, not much. But they've come, they come across this one particular area that there's big um, granite, almost describing it like a canyon. And in the middle of it is a flowing river. And it's a fascinating story. The, um, George Potter asked us his tour guide, is this always here? And it's an incredible how the tour guide ends up taking them there. But uh, he says, yes, it's, it's, it's always here. What's even more amazing, there's an area there that, that the locals call the, the Wells of Moses. And they, they state in the Quran, in, in the Quran chapter, chapter 7, if anyone's ever if read through it. If you want to the Quran through, while we're want, doing this, just thumb yeah, through it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know both you and I have, but I'll save we you looking it up, Clive. It's in number 7 and, and verse 160. And this is Moses. He says, we divided them into 12 descendant tribes as distinct nations and we inspired to Moses when his people implored him for water strike with your staff the stone and there gushed forth from it 12 springs every tribe knew its watering place and we shaded them with clouds and sent down upon them manna and quills what they believe in the local area is this river is fed from these waters these wells of Moses Right, the stones that Moses hit. That's that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they're that's what they're that's what they're called locally. Um, they they're called the they're, they're called the wells of Moses. That's what they are now, and it's that's why. So these so George Potter, um, he asked to go and to go and see these areas, and they take him to these to these waters of Moses, which is really incredible. So it's the Valley of Lemuel, and there is a half a chance that the river is flowing from these wells, which is really cool. So I definitely so suggest that tells if you, you would like that where mm-hmm. Moses trod is where Lehi and his family trod. Same place. Right. Wow. That's that that's yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. They the the well the people of Israel. Yeah. They were they camp, yeah. they they would have almost camped right near the area. Um George talks about incredible evidence that there was this area was clearly peopled. At a point in time, and he said, "You know, if you go back now, there's not much. But when they first started visiting, there was loads of evidence to suggest that the area was was peopled quite a quite a while." I mean, ago. it makes sense if you look at the map of where we believe they went. There's sort of like a valley where on one side there's these huge mountains, on the other side there's the river, and then there's just this one. I mean, from a long way up you know it looks like a sort of a walkway on the other side of the mountain is just complete dry desert so you wouldn't have been walking that way so it makes sense that you would have been walking where it looks like you would have been walking yeah that's right that's right they would have certainly have been walking uh, along the coast of the water and then depending on the local terrain may have had to have gone inland just a little bit but what i also like is that lehigh doesn't need the liahona Lehi finds this whole spot by himself. He walks there. So it's interesting to note that maybe he already knew of the area. Maybe he already knew it was called the Waters of Moses. 
Maybe it mentions it in the book. There is, Hi, here we went where Moses went. Perhaps. perhaps um, yeah. Oh, hey, Martin Harris, can you give us a chance? <laughs> so I, I think it's really interesting. Lehi, certainly, I, I, I think he would have known the area. There's great articles on this, so I don't need to repeat it. But Lehi would have most likely have known the area. He didn't need the Leahona. And neither did his sons who go back to get Laban. They kind of knew the area as well. Otherwise, they would have been they would have been stuffed, right? They wouldn't have been able to walk all the way back and not know the area. They had to walk for days and days, days and days. And I thought day. you and I, yeah. we'd, we'd end up, uh, we'd, we'd, who knows, we'd end up in Russia or something. <laughs> if we had to walk from that area, we, we don't know no the idea. area. No. I mean, like you so, said, so, Lehi yeah. was a traveler. You know, he traveled about. Uh, that was his job, sort of going place to place. So... He knew the area quite well. And then later when he doesn't know, the Lord sends a Leahona to help yeah. him. So they get to the area, of course, now. Am I skipping ahead a little bit too much? I guess I wanted to talk a little bit about Laban and the plates. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So we, yeah, there's a lot in between, which, again, we don't want to just sit here and read the scriptures to you. So something I wanted to point out, though, when they did go back to the place where they came from to get the brass plates... Now, in chapter 3, verse 9, I thought it was interesting that Nephi says, I, Nephi, and my brethren took our journey into the wilderness. So he's talking about going back. And he specifically writes, with our tents to the land of Jerusalem. Now, that part I thought was interesting because he specifically points out with our tents. Back in those times, it wasn't uncommon for young men to go to town and raid the towns so they'd go in get what they want and they'd get out they wouldn't take anything with them so nephi has to specifically point out where we went there with our tents we weren't there to raid weren't there to steal we didn't know how we were going to get the plates he says before that but we just know that you know so is it a is it like a quirk in the text where in reality for us well, I would. Just, I, 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 when I read this, I think he's taken tents because he's got to stay there for more than one day. But actually, he's recording this. Tell the audience in his present day that he was making an effort to not show that he was just a yobbo rolling through town, essentially. Exactly. I'm going in. We're taking our tents. We're not raiding. Promise you that we're not raiding because we're taking our tents. You see. Right. And we're going to go in. Yeah. So hmm. I thought that was a really interesting thing that he specifically pointed out. Going through that from that, you know, we know that they decided, you know, Laman was going to be the one that goes and speaks to Laban and go get the plates. And we know what happened there. Laban kicked them out and they sort of panicked and they started to go home. And Nephi thought, well, we can't just go home. We've got to figure out right. a way to go. So the actually the verse that I wanted to talk about from chapter three is verse 15. Whenever I'm asked to give a lesson or give a spiritual thought. There's really my, I've got two go-tos in the Book of Mormon. Enos is one, which is really significant. And, you know, there's something we'll get to later on in the year. But First Nephi chapter three, verse 15 is, is the other of my go-to. And it says here, but behold, I said unto them that as the Lord liveth and as we live, we will not go down unto our father in the wilderness until we have accomplished the thing which the Lord hath commanded us. And what's happening here is, like you mentioned, they're going away. They, they, they're kind of disgruntled a little bit that they weren't able to achieve what they wanted to achieve. So they start walking back. And then Nephi says, hang on a second. We, we still need to do what our fathers asked us to do. 
And what he does is he actually binds the Lord in an oath. And he says, as the Lord liveth and as we live, he actually he, he actually binds the Lord. And Bruce R. McConkie, in a really, really good general conference talk way back in April 82, actually, he actually talks about this in a talk he called The Doctrine of the Priesthood. And he says, uh, for instance, Nephi and his brethren were seeking to obtain the brass plates from Laban. Their lives were in peril, yet Nephi swore this oath. And he said, thus Nephi made God his partner. If he failed to get the plates, it meant that God had failed and it, and God does not fail. So Nephi saying, as the Lord lives, we're going to get the plates. So if we don't get the plates, the Lord doesn't live. It's an incredible show of spiritual maturity, I think, from Nephi to to say something like that of such gravity. And essentially from there, of course they're going to get the plates. They have one one more hiccup. You know, they go and get their precious things and they try to barter. But essentially Nephi knows that they're going to be able to get the plates. He's bound the Lord in this crusade that they're on, this spiritual crusade that they're on. It's a really, really fascinating verse, I think. I don't know how many times you've looked at that one, but I think it's it's a, it's absolute killer. I mean, I just thought it was Nephi being confident, but to be that confident that you can say, I'm binding this oath with the Lord. Right. That's I mean, that's that's very confident, you know, in my opinion, for for Nephi to go, This is what I'm doing, this is what I'm saying, the Lord is with me. Yeah, I think that's uh very powerful. Yeah, I've actually marked it here. Nephi, and I've marked it in my in my good old paper, you know, my good old scriptures that aren't on my phone. And I've got it, I've got it, you know, marked. And it says, Nephi enters into an oath with God. And then the footnote of 15a is topical guide, oath promise. And B, topical guide, commitment and dedication are the, are the two, yeah, are the two lookups for that verse. So, Really, really great verse um, that gives yeah. This whole chapter it just really gives us glimpses into what these what these men were actually like. See, it, it's funny because after that they still go back and they well, I mean, obviously they go back because Nephi's like I'm super confident now because of this. They go back and they go gold and silver. We'll take that and we'll trade. And Laban still doesn't give them the plates. Right. But the fact that Nephi's made this oath, he hasn't gone. Oh man, well, we've tried everything. He's gone, well, hold on. I've made this oath with the Lord. He is going to provide a way. I don't know how, but he is. And I guess that, that puts more power into the third time they went back. Yeah, that's a, a really good way of putting it, actually, because, yeah, he's to, to Laman and Lemuel, hey, we've given him everything that we own. And he's still like, we've got nothing else to give. Like, that's it. We're done. We failed. The mission's just not happening now. And I guess. When Laman and Lemuel were beating Nephi, Nephi still in his mind went, the Lord will provide a way. No matter what they do to me, I've already made this oath with the Lord. Yeah, this is where an angel appears as well, isn't it? I'm just quickly trying to look up ahead here. And they still complained. Yeah, that's right at the end. You know, the angel speaks to them and then he leaves and Laman and Lemuel still complained even after the angel visited them and said, don't worry, you know, the Lord will provide a way. Yeah, you know, slight sidebar here. I taught a couple of times about how and you know i don't know if we ever wanted to go the podcast to go into these more touchy-feely things but essentially we are layman and lemuel we have these really spiritual experiences 
<laughs> we have these really spiritual experiences and we're on spiritual highs and then sometimes we drop down and then we have another spiritual experience and we come back up where Nephi is just 100% spiritual all the time. And where Laman and Lemuel more on this roller coaster, you know, they repent. They repent a couple of times, I think, from memory, but they also yeah, see yeah. angels a couple of times as well. And so they're up and they're down, they're up and they're down. But as we know, they end on they end on down, as opposed to ending on a, ending on a spiritual up. Yep. Oh, that's that's all I'll say on the matter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's uh, so let's go to the uh, the third attempt then when they go back and they say you know, Nephi says the Lord the Lord will provide a way. I don't know how, but he will. Um, he goes back, and he sees Laban drunk, and he gets this overwhelming feeling that he should kill Laban but then you know he sort of goes well I've never killed anyone before and then you know the Lord speaks to him but I want to point out something specific that he points out in verse 9 of chapter 4 he dedicates an entire verse when all this is happening before he's killed Laban and moved on he dedicates an entire verse to talk about how nice he thinks the sword of Laban is I just want to read a little bit he says his sword I drew from the sheath and the hilt thereof was of pure gold, and the workmanship thereof was exceedingly fine. The blade thereof was of the most precious steel. I was always confused by that. Like, why would you take the time to talk about this sword? It just doesn't seem like the appropriate time mm. to me to go, what an amazing sword. Looking into the, trying to understand, or I should say, the history of the sword. Where did it come right. from? How did Laban get his hands on it? We know that Laban got the plates because he was, in his genealogy, he was a descendant of Joseph of Egypt. Uh, because when Lehi gets the plates, he reads it and he... Right. We learned that chapter, well. chapter 5, right? That's right. That so one. there's a Jewish tradition that Methuselah had an, a wonderful, he describes it, a wonderful sword that he handed down to Abraham. Abraham inherited it. And he conquered kings with this sword that he got handed down. Esau received it as an heirloom from Isaac and since he was the firstborn. But then, you know, once he sold his birthright to Jacob, Jacob got it. Um, he got this sword. So this miraculous sword, Methuselah described it as a sword that was more precious than money, which is almost the same way Nephi describes it. So it's not only a treasure or a... A sort of weapon it's it's an heirloom so it makes me wonder if this particular sword is the same sword because we don't stop there that's not the end of the sword of laban right. we read about it all the way through the scriptures don't we oh ab absolutely we find the first or the, the the very next time it's talked about is in second nephi it's chapter 5 verse 14 nephi it, the sword is so good that nephi makes other swords like it and now Nephi did take the sword of Laban and um, after the manner of it did make many swords. This is where some uh, really skillful scholars think that, you know, Nephi was a, was a, a crafty blacksmith. So he takes any, he, he gets, he gets other um, swords copying, copying the likeness of the sword of Laban because it's so good. And then if we move forward to Ch uh, Jacob 1.10, the people having loved Nephi exceedingly, he having been great protector for them and having wielded the sword of Laban in their defense. 
So it's an active item that people are very well aware of. And then all the way in words of Mormon, this is here, King Benjamin gathered together his armies and he did stand against them and he did fight with the strength of his own arm with the sword of Laban. And then even one more in Mosiah 1.16, I've got this one highlighted. And moreover, he also gave him charge. So this is uh, after King Benjamin. So it came to pass that after King Benjamin had made an end of these sayings to his son, that he gave him charge concerning all the affairs of the kingdom. And moreover, he also gave him charge concerning the records which were engraven on the plates of brass and also the plates of Nephi and also the sword of Laban. So the sword continues to get talked about right throughout the book. And it's clearly being passed down. Certainly in Nephi's lineage, it's being passed down and down and down. There's something precious about it, even to the point where we talked last week, the witnesses were able to see the plates, but not only that, they also saw the sword of Laban. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, yeah, Angel um, Angel Moroni showed them the showed the the three witnesses the 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 sword as well. That's right. And and then Brigham Young he talks about um, Camorra's cave, uh, the hill uh, hill Camorra opened up, and that's where the plates were returned to. He talks about the, the sword of Laban. The first time he saw it, it was hung up on the wall. The second time he goes back, it's on a table and it's unsheathed, and he says that it had writing on it. And it said, this sword will never be sheathed again until the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. Even from that, such a powerful message from a sword that to me, I always thought it was strange that Nephi dedicated one verse to it. Now, I wish you dedicated the whole chapter to it, you know? Yeah, actually, there's just, just so so much more to the sword. Um, yeah, where, where, where did Laban get it from? And, and is it a... Did it get handed down all the way through to him and he just became the bearer of the sword? It, it, for those people who have seen our If You Could Hide to Colob logo, we've got four pictures on there and the top left is a sword unsheathed. The sheath is next to the sword. Uh, it's a really great topic to talk about the sword and has far more meaning within our particular religion than I think that we we certainly certainly that we understand. I think that most people understand. Um, it's a real item that has had a lot to do with our history. Exactly, it's more of a symbol now than an actual physical weapon. So that's I thought that was fascinating. Moving on, you know, we know that Nephi gets the plates and he goes back. Takes Zoram. Take where well, he does. He takes Zoram, which um, yeah, Zoram's good guy. He um, eventually, you know, he, he follows Nephi. Right. Um, and then, yeah, that, that leads us into chapter five, which is the last chapter that we'll be talking about today. Yeah, well, chapter five, I've got I've got a couple of verses in my scriptures highlighted, and one of them is verse three. And after this manner of language had my mother complained against my father. There's a, a verse here, verse two, which is a record of unhappy things that Sarai was saying. She was very stressed. And she, of course, knows Laban, and and of course the you know Lehi and Co would have would have been known to Laban. It's obvious, or they wouldn't have been able to get an audience with him. So they know they would have known him, and Sariah would have known his temper, and so she was stressed for them. But why did why did Nephi? Why would he have taken the time to to write 
and after this language did my mother complain? And the answer is is actually quite simple because the next lot of verses is a dedication to Lehi and what Lehi teaches. Lehi comforts Sariah in verse 9. It came to pass that they did rejoice exceedingly and did offer sacrifice and burnt offerings unto the Lord, and they gave thanks unto the God of Israel. I can imagine Sariah being so stressed, but then Nephi and co. return back, and they're just so happy. And Lehi, as the patriarch of this family, the patriarch of the Book of Mormon, takes time to thank God and an altar here again, we talked about earlier, an altar outside the temple. So it takes time to to build an altar to offer burnt sacrifice and offer burnt, burnt offerings, really showing that this new brand of religion is greater than the old, and this is now the branch of Israel. So a really, really intense few verses here. That, are, that, that I think that Nephi brings them on by introducing it as we gave thanks because they were on such a low, they were so stressed, but actually the Lord took care of it and Lehi wanted to make a note that the Lord was going to take care of them and then offer so much thanks for taking care of them. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but it makes sense. After that, Lehi gets the plates and, you know, the first thing he does is look into his genealogy. Well, he understands that Adam and Eve and the books of Moses... Um, he looks at his genealogy, like we mentioned, that right. he is of the lineage of Joseph of Egypt. So really the plates belong to him as much as they belong to Laban. Obviously he's of the Lord. So Do we think they're cousins or something? Yeah, we, we do believe so. Uh, they are related a little bit further back. That's sort of the reason why he gets them. I mean, it makes so. sense, right? Because it is, we, you know, Laban was the ruler of the land and Lehi was, was quite privileged you know, he did have wealth. And so perhaps it was all, you know, a big family type scenario, maybe. Yeah, well, like you said, you know, they're probably known to Laban and Laban was known to them. You can't just walk into the ruler's house and expect a sit down conversation. Start bartering. Yeah, no chance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, interesting. I think, yeah, I think we covered quite a bit. In those five verses, I think they were very interesting, the things that we've been looking into. I'd like to read a little bit from the end of principles of using the Book of Mormon. He says, The Book of Mormon is the word of God. How thankful we ought to be as servants of the Lord to know that we have the Book of Mormon to help us teach the children of God in every nation of the earth. Through the Book of Mormon, they can know that the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ has been restored to the earth through the prophet Joseph Smith. Our work would be next to impossible without his precious volume of scripture that testifies of Jesus Christ and clarifies the teachings of his gospel. Fantastic. Great find. Yeah. What was the reference okay. on that one? M. Russell Ballard, and it was Principles for Using the Book of Mormon. It was from a missionary broadcast in 1994. Well, thank you to everyone who's listened to our second episode of the podcast for Come Follow Me 2024. We're grateful for you joining us. Head to hightocolob underscore podcast on Instagram for the references that we've spoken about tonight. And um, we hope that we are able to companion your studies this year and we're offering you something extra to have a think about. We'll see you next week.